Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up. On this episode, Dr. Kunla and I are joined by a special guest pod person and chair of the physics department at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, Dr. Shelley Lesher. We'll be discussing the odd phenomenon known as Havana Syndrome, in which American and Canadian embassy workers have had their health and quality of life ruined by something, some unknown force. The American State Department has suggested it might be the result of some sort of secret sonic or radiation weapon, but the CIA isn't so sure. But we think we might have an idea about what's actually going on. And I'll see you on the other side of the theme song. This is all a test. We've talked about this actually happening historically in terms of the Moscow signal. We've talked about the U.S.'s interest in trying to weaponize this stuff. We've even talked about some potential low-level successes. So I'm starting to think that there might be something to the Havana syndrome. It's a lot later than the initial stories that we were looking at, which spans sort of the 60s to the 80s. It's now uh, 2022. And probably technology, as well as our understanding of uh, science, has increased dramatically. Is there some validity now to the idea that maybe in Havana, these embassy workers are in fact being subjected to a new type of weapon? Well, let's look at the symptoms of what people are reporting for Havana syndrome and uh, a little bit of the, the timeline for it. So what people report is pain in one or both ears, tinnitus, vision problems, nausea, vertigo, dizziness, fatigue, sleep issues, and cognitive difficulties. And these symptoms tend to be preceded by strange noises, buzzing, grinding, or a high-pitched whine. So the American State Department has been taking this extremely seriously. After it became public, uh, the Americans actually withdrew a bunch of non-essential personnel from the Cuban embassy. In 2018, a study is printed in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, which concluded that every one of the 21 embassy staff that had been examined showed evidence of concussion-like symptoms, as well as persistent cognitive, vestibular, and oculomotor dysfunction, as well as sleep impairment and headaches, these individuals appeared to have sustained injury to widespread brain networks. So it's serious. This is like professional medical researchers who are doing what I would assume is real science. Yeah, and this study was extremely influential. It was picked up by media, and basically this was put forward as evidence, yes, it's a weapon. It's okay. a weapon. It's a directed weapon. Something's going on. Something's going on. Okay. However, it's peer reviewed. It's a peer reviewed study. It is a peer reviewed study. Yeah, a peer reviewed uh, study. What are the, what's the average age of the people who were impacted? They were. I mean, it was over over forty five. I'm sorry, Shelley. I had to laugh when you asked that because when when Nathan was running through his list of symptoms, I'm like, that does sound a lot like being in your forties, actually. So <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I'm like, check, check. Exactly. Yeah. And what year were people first talking about the symptoms? They were first talking about the symptoms in 2017. I mean, they started to, to show up in 2016, but it didn't really become widespreadly known until 2017. Okay. Noted. Continue. 
So this JAMA study, uh, I've read it, and there are some issues with it, I would say. Really? One, right in the very introduction of the purpose of the study, they say, the purpose of the study is, quote, to describe the neurological manifestations that followed exposure to an unknown energy source. Wait, that's the scientific, that's like the thesis? That's the of thesis. The paper? Yeah, that is the, that's the purpose of this study. That's not an independent look at anything. That is, the conclusion is drawn in the first sentence. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's an issue. In the logic business, we call that begging the question. Right, because the assumption is that there is exposure to an energy weapon when what we're looking for, the three of us, is, is there exposure to an energy weapon? And if you pose that question one way, you get a different set of answers than if you pose it another way, Right. Well, that and the the question is, these are doctors looking at patients. They have no idea what the cause of symptoms are, right? If, if, if I break my leg in a car accident and I go to a doctor and I don't say anything, the doctor isn't going to say, Shelly broke her leg in a car accident. The right. doctor is going to say, this patient exhibits a broken leg. Okay. Yeah. Right? They're not going to assume how I got my leg broken. Yeah, exactly. And they're already making that assumption in the very beginning of this study. This isn't the conclusion. This isn't, is there something here? It's, there is some mysterious energy thing here, and we've already decided that there is one. Right. And I like to call this the Bermuda Triangle problem. Oh, yeah. Because if you take a, <laughs> um, a triangle and put it over any area of the world, and you say, something weird is happening here, not, is something weird happening here, but you, you start with the premise that something weird is happening here, you will be able to come up with a lot of confirming data. But that's the wrong question to ask, right? As you say, it begs the question. Yeah. Uh, there's other issues as well. I mean, the fact that they start off by assuming there's some unknown energy source is a problem because what we find is so greatly affected by what we're looking for. Yeah. The other, yes. Another issue with the GEM report is that it stated that there had been significant white matter damage amongst the 21 staff tested. But then when those findings were actually printed, they stated that the results of the test had indicated nonspecific white matter changes in some individuals but were otherwise unrevealing. Hmm. And again... Lee, not so much for you because you're still a very young person, but those of us who were born in 1975, I mean, Shelley, how do you think your white matter's doing at this point? It's on the decline, I'm guessing. Yeah, my brain's been, my brain has been through a lot. I mean, some of it is stuff that I've put my brain through, Yeah. but a lot of it is just being out here in the world. Like, I think you lost some white matter reading that David Icke book. Yeah, most of it, I think. <laughs> and... When the original study had defined impairment as any score under the 40th percentile of normal responses, which means that if you just pulled people off the street randomly, four out of 10 of those people would have been classified as pathologically impaired. Okay. Like you should have been more like a like fifth percentile or seventh percentile, something that would be more, more extreme. Like you're basically saying, no, like 40% of the people are this impaired. One of the issues I have with the brain study is when you're talking about the brain, we know so little about the brain to begin with. And when you're trying to compare this loss of brain matter, unless you have a brain scan of this person before they went to Cuba and then after they went to Cuba, it's really hard to say this is the 
you know, there's kind of this cause and effect because there's so many things that could could be the reason that someone loses brain matter. I mean, a concussion, for example, and people don't even realize they've suffered from concussions many times, but there's no, there's no comparative for these brain scans. They just have one after. I was also going to ask, sort of following along Shelley's worry about the science, um, is there, was there direction given to uh, these doctors in terms of, we want you to look for this? Because it seems like left to their own devices, they would design the question and the study and everything differently. Yeah, and, that, and that's, again, the issue. They were looking for evidence mm. to back up a conclusion that they already had. Mm. And, I mean, the, the sad truth is, for those of us who are old, like, you're going to find, like, I, I get brain scans occasionally. And I remember my last brain scan that I went in for, the neurologist said, now be prepared, this is going to find some damage, mm. just because you've been out here in these streets for 45 years. Right. And, like, stuff will have happened to you. So the, the JAMA study, despite being extremely influential and sort of widespread in the media, there are a lot of flaws with it. And what's interesting is that from intelligence agencies, we see a lot of different opinions. Like the FBI released an internal report in 2018 arguing that there was not evidence to indicate that there was a deliberate attack. The head of the CIA, William Burns, in 2021, uh, he warned Russia publicly that there would be consequences if they were behind the Havana Syndrome attacks. But then the CIA released a report in 2022 that claimed that it was unlikely that Havana Syndrome was being caused by a deliberate technological attack by a foreign power. Even the Jasons, remember those guys? Oh, yeah. I do, yes. So uh, very quickly, who were the Jasons? The Jasons were a group of physicists, right? It was a think tank, kind of like a, a, a think tank that got together, I think in the summer, right? And solved problems that were asked of them. You had to be invited to be a Jason. Yeah, it's like a secret Steve... society of scientists. Yeah. So this association, this sort of almost borderline secret association of top level scientists called the Jasons, uh, they came to the conclusion also that this was not an attack. Okay. But the State Department has come out and said that it was an attack. And so we're sort of all over the place here. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence put out a report in 2022 saying that the signs and symptoms are genuine and compelling. They can't be explained by known environmental or medical conditions. Pulsed electromagnetic energy, particularly in the radio frequency range, plausibly explains the core characteristics of these symptoms. Ultrasound also plausibly explains the core characteristics. And that ionizing radiation, chemical and biological agents, infrasound, audible sound, ultrasound propagated over large distances, and bulk heating from electromagnetic energy are all implausible explanations for the core characteristics. So it seems like we're sort of, we're, we're getting like different opinions here from the American government. And it points out something that, Lee, you're often irritated by when people say the government says this, because the government, of course, is made up of many different agencies, often who have completely different opinions. Yeah, and often those agencies have a lot of people pulling in different directions. Yeah. But I just wanted to uh, go back to our expert, Shelley. When you hear this uh, list, I mean, the one plausible explanation was what? Pulsed radio waves? Pulsed electromagnetic energy. Pulsed electromagnetic energy. In the radio energy. frequency range. I like, I like that they add pulse to it because it's it makes it sound 
more special than the Moscow signal, which was not, I guess, it was not just a pulse. Drone. Right. So, and then we have ionizing radiation, heat, sound, blah blah blah, all implausible. Well, ultrasound was plausible. I see. So we have ultrasound or pulsed electromagnetic radiation. Shelley, what do you think? Is this can could you imagine a way to make people sick by using whatever pulsed electromagnetic radiation is in such a way again that they don't show visible symptoms on the outside but that somehow we cause brain damage what was the one the not uh, ultrasound 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 can be very very powerful okay so there are cases where for ultrasound can be used to break up gallstones and can be used to to break up kidney stones for example so it can be very powerful. But with ultrasound, if you were going to do that, wouldn't you have to physically like place the ultrasound, what would you call it? It's not device? a receiver. Yeah, the ultrasound device. Wouldn't you have to re- place the ultrasound device directly on the person to the point yes. where like even an air bubble or something in between the device and the person would result in that in that ultrasound sort of falling apart. Correct. Okay. Yes. So and I- and that's why probably the most the most known use of ultrasound is when you take a picture of a baby in in utero, right? So when a pregnant woman goes to get their first ultrasound, but they have that gel that they put on the receiver and that's for those air bubbles. So even if you have something between the skin and the probe, then it's going to make a difference. And so to use ultrasound on a kidney stone, then you also have to use kind of that gel to make that connection. So while ultrasound is a way that you can break up kidney stones, you couldn't do it over a long distance. So I couldn't be halfway across the room with an ultrasound breaking up kidney stones in in a patient. It has to be direct contact. Now, okay, here's a thought. There have been, this goes back into some spy craft, there have been Soviet assassinations that were orchestrated by putting plutonium or some ionizing radiation physically into like the chair that the victim would be using on a daily basis, right? So you, you stick some a little bit of plutonium and then over a period of into their office chair, and then over a period of weeks they go unknowingly sit right there on it and start to get sick. And then now again, being as sympathetic as possible to these conspiracy theories. Could we imagine an ultrasound device somehow smuggled into the embassy? Could we stick them into their chairs and uh, start irradiating their kidney stones without their permission? They'd have to be covered in goo. They would have to be covered in goo, eh? Yeah. But I think, let's, let's get into it. I think we've sort of gotten there anyway. Let's look at the three main hypotheses All right. and see, okay, which one of these is the most reasonable? So since we're talking about sound anyway, let's talk about audio weapons. Many of the people who reported Havana syndrome symptoms also reported hearing weird noises. So one of the main hypotheses was that there was some sort of audio signal being used as a weapon. So can sound be a weapon? Well, I mean, sound is energy, ultimately. Energy can have some effects on us. Uh, well, we got a physicist. Can we ask her? Yeah. Can sound be a weapon? Of torture, sure, right? They use it all the time. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, In fact, uh, when I was rioting in the streets of Toronto during the 2010 G20 summit, I had silicone plugs in my ears 
because we had heard rumors that the police might be using sonic weapons against protesters at that riot, although there were no recorded instances of that actually happening. Is there such a thing as a sonic weapon like that? Like, that's not just annoying music that some idiot's playing out of his car? Like, Well, well I mean, this is something that came up in our episode on ghosts. We talked about the case of Vic Tandy, uh, an engineer working at a lab in the 1980s in England. After he started working there, uh, his co-workers told him that the place was haunted and that he should be careful if he was working alone. And Tandy didn't believe it. He was a scientist. But then he started having strange and frightening experiences that he couldn't explain. Uh, he had chills. He had feelings of dread. He had sweating. He saw movement out of the corners of his eyes. And one night he was feeling particularly creeped out. And a ghost suddenly emerged to his left and just glided towards him. And when he spun to face it, it dissolved. But, as it turned out, there had been an extraction fan installed in the building a few months earlier, and the fan vibrated in such a way that it created not ultrasound, but infrasound. What's which is, infrasound? Uh, sound waves at like 0.1 hertz to 20 hertz. That's too low for us to hear it. Okay. But it can have some weird physiological and psychological impacts on us as humans. Uh, it can cause shallow breathing, hyperventilation, blurred vision, increased heart rate, and muscle tension. And there's even been some speculation that a naturally caused infrasound burst may have been what caused the Dyatlov hikers to panic in the Dyatlov Pass incident. Really? Yeah. Oh. So this one's got legs. The, I mean, maybe. This one, this one does have legs. Yeah. Or have either of you heard of something called the mosquito anti-loitering device? Yes, I have, in fact. I think they tried to use it on me. No. It wouldn't work on you now. No, not now. When I was a teenager, there was a problem of teenagers hanging around subway entrances. Yep. And apparently we were scaring the good citizens of Toronto, especially the aged ones. And they didn't want to take the subway, at, you know, after school was let out because there's all these hooligans hanging around. So I don't know if this is true, if they really did this, but this was the rumor that they had actually in Bathurst subway station ins installed this high frequency sound that though only teenagers can hear because they still got all those little hairy bits in their ears that pick up sound and then those die as you get older. And so we have less range of hearing. So the idea was, whatever, 30 and up, you're, you're immune. You don't hear this high-pitched screeching sound, but somewhere, you know, and it varies from person to person, definitely teenagers would find this very unpleasant. Well, at this point, I have to interrupt because we do have a commercial break coming up. So uh, we're going to go to commercial and then we'll come back. Do you want peace and quiet in your own home and garden? Do you always want your business premises to remain secure and safe from teens' unwanted behavior? Do you want to take back control without confrontation? If the answer is yes, it's simple. The Mosquito Ultrasonic Anti-Loitering Device. A safe, benign way of preventing antisocial behavior. Yay! That's so cool. And we're back. I, I kind of want one. Yeah, because you're immune to it. And teenagers well, with their fresh new ears can't stand it. If you can't hear it, that means you're too old. Right. Okay, this is great. But is it great? Because according to the German Federal Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the device can cause dizziness, headache, uh, nausea, cognitive impairment. Okay. So again, maybe we see this idea of a sound weapon 
is not that far-fetched. It does seem to fit with some of the symptoms that we see with Havana syndrome. But my question is, do the symptoms persist after you're removed from the situation? And that's a really important point because as soon as the sound is switched off, those symptoms should go away. Okay. And there's other problems too, like the fact that it seems to be very targeted. Like there are lots of times where there would be somebody who would develop Havana syndrome and other people in the room would not. Mm. So for a sound weapon, it would be difficult to understand how that could be done. And again, as Shelley points out, the persistence of the symptoms seem to indicate that the sound weapon, although there's something to it, it's sort of interesting, it, it doesn't seem like a very good fit. Can I just ask, do I need to uh, consciously experience it in order to have these deleterious effects? No. Okay. Because uh, I was... and, and same with infrasound, right? Okay. Infrasound, you don't even hear it at all. Okay. But you do okay. have all of the effects from okay. it. Okay. Okay. But they don't last. Right. Okay. Okay, so why don't we then move to another hypothesis, the microwave weapon. We've talked about the fry effect. You can make the sounds of clicks and, and whistles and things like that in somebody's ear. And uh, again, there were some doctors who were experimenting in beaming things into people's heads. The U.S. Army's website had a page on it until very recently on a voice to skull weapons. And while it was still up, it said this, Non-lethal weapon, which includes, one, a neuroelectromagnetic device which uses microwave transmission of sound into the skull of persons or animals by way of pulse-modulated microwave radiation. And two, a silent sound device which can transmit sound into the skull of person or animals. Note, the sound modulation may be voice or audio subliminal messages. One application of voice to skull is use as an electronic scarecrow device to frighten birds in the vicinity of airports. Because that's totally what we'd use yeah. it for. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, is any of this plausible, Shelley? Can, can you somehow bundle sound and, and like shoot it at people's heads? And then th that's how I'm imagining this, like a little packet of, of sound, like a bullet. In a microwave. In, in a microwave bundle. And, and you shoot it at someone's head and then they hear like a voice in their head. Is this at all plausible? Or is this like a whole bunch of nonsense that somebody who wants some research money puts together? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, not plausible. It doesn't sound plausible, no. but I kind of want it to be. Well, because the other thing that we had put to bed in another episode uh, way back was this idea of subliminal messaging. So the fact that the writer believes that there is such a thing makes me skeptical, actually, of the, of the entire statement. Well, and the other thing is that we have seen in the past, there's a lot of claims that are made for these weapon systems, which don't right. necessarily pan out. Okay. So that, that's also a bit of an issue. The other thing that it's the continuation. All of these weapons are to get someone to go away, you know, to, to, to remove birds from a situation or to remove teenagers from a subway. It's to disperse. Right. They're not persistent. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, it doesn't damage you to the fact that to the point that when you leave the situation, you still experience symptoms. Yeah. I mean, when we look at microwave, not microwave weapons, but millimeter wave weapons, uh, Raytheon, who, of course, we're all familiar with, d designed something called the active denial system, uh, used a millimeter wave, and it created an instant heat sensation. Uh, again, it was designed to use against protesters, and it was apparently capable of causing second-degree burns, although they insisted that wasn't the point of it. So basically, 
there'd be a bunch of people who would rush your embassy and then you would fire this thing at them and they would feel the sensation of their skin being on fire. Huh. There was a sensation that it probably was on fire. Yeah, well, but, but they claimed that it was quite ethical. And, and when has Raytheon ever lied to us? Uh, never. They yeah. have never lied to us. Now, back in 2019, the D.C. military police actually requested this device to help deal with protesters outside of the White House. So we do see that there are attempts to weaponize like secret remote weapon systems which can affect people without there being like an obvious and clear method of that of that affecting. But it takes several hours to reach operating temperature. It's so massive as far as we know in 2022 at least that it takes like a truck to haul it around. And Shelley's point that she keeps making, I think is one of the most crucial ones, it wouldn't cause persistent symptoms. And the people who have Havana syndrome, like their symptoms are terrifyingly persistent. That's, mm. that's, that's part of what makes this such a, a terrible condition is that it doesn't seem to be going away. These people are having their lives ruined. People say they've had headaches for like four years in a row. Hmm. They're incapable of working anymore. They say their eyes can no longer focus. And none of these explanations seems to be able to explain that. Well, what's left? What's left is mass psychogenic illness. And Which is the most controversial one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You might think it's the most insulting one because it sounds like we're saying that these people are making it up. Well, they're that, faking it. That, that has happened in the history of medicine is that there have been certain conditions, especially brought to the medical profession by certain groups of people, and it's been roundly dismissed as, well, it's, quote unquote, just in your head. Yeah. I think of, for example, depression. You know, for a long time, depression was not considered a very, you know, just like, just buck up and get on with it and stop moping around was the kind of medical you know, prescription for that. Chronic fatigue syndrome, certain kinds of non-obviously localizable pain, you know, and as Shelley mentioned earlier, how complex and... Uh, uh, how complex the brain is, how little we know about that. Now, we know a lot about, more about um, our bodies, and yet they are also extremely complex systems where weird things go wrong, and there has been a, a tendency within mainstream medicine to dismiss certain groups of people with symptoms that don't conform with the stuff that we expect or that, that just don't seem bad enough. And yeah, I mean, it must be extremely frustrating to go with what we now consider, you know, what we now know to be very real physical conditions, ailments, to go to your doctor. You say, I have chronic pain. You know, I can't get up in the morning. I'm tired 23 out of 24 hours a day. And they're just like, Ugh, it's just in your head. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's got to be so infuriating and such a willful denial of something that's so so obviously true to me that I have to say that I'm often quite suspicious of that as a diagnosis. So can you give me any defense here of why, why anybody should take something like this? It's, you know what? Sorry, this is more an inside joke for longtime listeners, but it is psychogenic illness has the same effect on me as when I hear the government say weather, weather balloon. balloon. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no, now you've got me suspicious. I was fine until you said weather balloon. And now I think there's something up. 
Well, certainly in that 2018 JAMA report that we talked about earlier, they dismissed mass psychogenic illness out of hand. They said the symptoms were prolonged rather than short-lived. The majority of the victims were men uh, instead of mostly women. And the subjects were oh, cooperative. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think all our eyebrows oh. went up there, but I think Shelley almost just fell off her chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk briefly about hysteria. Mass psychogenic illness is sometimes called mass hysteria, but we're specifically not calling it mass hysteria. Like, hysteria as a medical idea in the past has been pretty goofy. It was this idea that women who were unhappy or depressed or didn't want to have sex with their husbands, it wasn't because their husband was unappealing. Or, or, or sometimes, you know, wore pants. Yeah, or wore pants like my grandma did. So those women had something called hysteria. And uh, if you look at sort of the ancient Greek origin of it, it's this idea that uh, the womanly parts, I'm not going to get too technical here, but uh, like your uterus would become sort of detached and kind of move around your body and interfere with your brain. So we're not calling it uh, hysteria because hysteria has all of these sort of ridiculous connotations to it. But the thing about mass psychogenic illness is it isn't those things like the fact that the JAMA study said that it couldn't be mass psychogenic illness because it was prolonged symptoms, men who were cooperative and not faking, that just shows me that they did not understand the concept of mass psychogenic illness. It has nothing to do with people faking. It has nothing to do with people being weak-minded. It has mm. nothing to do with any of that. It's a genuine illness that doesn't have to do with your like strength of character. The symptoms that people experience when they have mass psychogenic illness are very, very real. These people aren't malingering. They're not faking. Symptoms can last a long time. In fact, if doctors don't, if doctors don't consider the possibility that an outbreak of a mysterious illness might be an example of mass psychogenic illness, those doctors can actually accidentally lengthen the time that those symptoms are present. Because what you're doing is you're then feeding into that illness. What mass psychogenic illness actually is, is a combination of a sociological idea and a psychological idea. It's a combination of mass panic and the nocebo effect. What's the nocebo effect? Well, what's the placebo effect? Uh, the placebo effect is when you think that a um, substance is having an effect on you, and then it, in fact, does have that effect on you. Yeah. I think you use the example of drinking non-alcoholic alcohol when you don't know it's non-alcoholic. And then you get wasted. And you get drunk. Yeah. Well, an, uh, the placebo effect is a medicine that you think will work, then has an effect, a positive mm. effect. The nocebo effect is something that you think is going to harm you, causes a harmful effect. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's, it's sort of like the opposite of the uh, placebo effect, although it's the same mechanism. Well, exactly. It's In a sense, it's also exactly the same thing. Yeah. Psychogenic illness can affect, obviously, men and women. Uh, the idea that it mostly affects women probably has its roots in this sort of hysteria nonsense that used to be common. So let's look at some examples of when this happened, this mass psychogenic illness, when it occurred. Can I ask, though? <clears throat> you, the, we agreed that these people had real symptoms, yep. like yes. real physical symptoms. 100%. So mass psychogenic illness, if we're saying that there's no weapon or anything, can people have real physical effects with mass psychogenic illness? Yes. Ab absolutely, they can. Uh, I'll give you an example. 2016, 
165 residents of Devonshire, England fall ill with uh, headaches, dizziness, fatigue, disorientation, general aches and pains. Hmm. The cause of this illness, giraffes. <laughs> the animal? The animal. The, the long-necked animal, giraffes. I'll explain. Please right, do. So it had just been reported that giraffes communicate with each other through low-frequency humming, which is cool. Oh, so like giraffes from cool. like across the Serengeti, if that's... Where, where are giraffes from? Why are you looking at me? Why are you both looking at me? Um, I don't know. I'm no giraffe expert, but... So giraffes from across the icy tundra? Definitely not. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so no. giraffes can communicate with each other through this low-frequency humming. Now, the residents who were complaining about feeling ill all lived near the zoo. Mm -hmm. And so the argument was made that these giraffes were humming, and that was causing this illness. Right. None of these people were faking it. Yeah. But, like, when they actually tested it, they found that, no, these sounds aren't transmitted that far. No, these sounds wouldn't cause these, these symptoms anyway. But, but that doesn't mean that the people were lying. They had the belief that the giraffe humming was dangerous. Not only that, but that had been shared in the media and shared amongst each other. And in the community, it became like a, it became a sticky idea. And we see this over and over and over again. I'll give you another weird example. 2022, people were out in front of New Zealand's parliament buildings to protest COVID-19 protocols and vaccine mandates. And it became clear that the protesters weren't gonna leave. So the New Zealand authorities put up some large concrete barricades to control the crowd. Now, after this happened, some of the protesters started to complain that they were having strange symptoms that could only be explained by the fact that the government was using a radiation weapon to sicken the protesters and break up the protest. Their symptoms, headaches, dizziness, fatigue, disorientation, general aches and pains. There was even a clip of a protester holding up a device for measuring electromagnetic fields and pointing out that it was reading 80 uh, the protester admitted he didn't know what uh, that meant or how to use the device, but he said it had to mean something. Right. <laughs> uh, an expert who watched the video said that the device was just measuring magnetic flux from the steel reinforcing the concrete. But to protect themselves against the electromagnetic waves, some protesters started wearing... Tinfoil hats. hats. Exactly. Tinfoil hats, which then were effective. <laughs> and what this is an amazing example of, assuming that the, the New Zealand government wasn't actually using radiation weapons against these protesters, what this is an example of is like it's a fight between the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. Mm. Is, which is going to win? Which is more powerful, the nocebo effect of the imaginary radiation weapon or the placebo effect of your tinfoil hat? I love it. Um, while you were talking, it actually reminded me that we had discussed this before, and it came up in our discussion about vaccines. And I had brought up at that point um, this case uh, that happened in 2014 in Colombia, where there was a big HPV vaccine drive. And suddenly, news reports started to surface. If you want the full story, go back to the Vaccine Act um, episode. But um, news reports started to surface that these girls, so it's, it's I think, um, uh, girls between the ages of 18, uh, sorry, 11 and 18 years old, and they started uh, exhibiting very severe symptoms of sort of shakiness, not being able to stand up, weakness, headaches, fatigue, dizziness, disorientation. And 
This happened shortly after a recent vaccine drive. And then the link was established in the media that, hey, they got the vaccine and then later this happened. And you know how irresponsible reporting can sometimes really, without exactly making the causal connection, leave it hanging in the air like that. And then once that was sort of put out there, that it was this vaccine, which so many studies after the fact, and also, of course, before, found no causal link at all between these symptoms and the, the vaccine drive, but it became a phenomenon. And, and more and more people in Colombia started to report this, and uh, it got all the way up to the health minister who had to make like a public statement about this. In a similar event that had happened in Japan just two years earlier, um, they had to actually pull the HPV vaccine and they no longer did this public health drive. And this, of course, then is used as data for vaccine skeptics who can point to news reports with girls in hospitals and crying parents and, and, and distressed community members. The symptoms are very real, but the causal link you know, it, it wasn't giraffes trying to communicate to each other. It wasn't the New Zealand government using some new kind of sound weapon that tinfoil hats could help you prevent. And it wasn't the HPV vaccine. But the symptoms are very real and people get very scared. And I think as we've hit upon this so often, Nathan and I in our, in our talks, that we are social beings who look to each other to assess how safe our environment is. And if I start to recognize that uh, you, Nathan, and you, Shelley, are starting to kind of exhibit adverse effects, I might start opening myself up to the possibility that my usual aches and pains that have now become more present as I get older and older are actually now meaningful in a certain way that I might have dismissed them as before. Yeah, I could make you witchy by scratching myself. I'm going to admit something really I don't maybe shouldn't admit, okay? Well, good thing we're on a podcast. Right. But I will admit, because precisely this, Nathan, happened a few years ago. I am very safe now, but uh, I did have bed bugs. My family, we had bed bugs. And yeah, there goes Nathan. And when I mentioned it to people, right, we, we'd solve the problem. They would inevitably start scratching themselves. It was, I mean, it was, it was funny. I started doing it just for fun. And I would say, you know, we, we just recently had bad bugs and people would like, they couldn't help it. They would just, <laughs> you can, you can, you can mess with people through mass psychogenic illnesses. So now we've got, we've got a, a real situation with, with Havana syndrome. We've got people who have been uh, encountering these terrible symptoms We've got three hypotheses. Okay. Why don't we start with Shelley? Shelley, of those three hypotheses, if we forced you to choose one, which one would you choose and why? We've got the idea that it's a sound weapon, that okay. it's some kind of radiation weapon, and that it isn't a weapon at all, but an example of a mass psychogenic illness. I take number three. So one of the things I want to point out is people heard a noise. Some of the diplomats brought back an audio recording of what they heard as proof that they were, you know, there was this weapon. And I do have a clip of that. I'll have, I'll send it to you, Nathan. You can. I'll insert it right you know, kind of here. 
And there it was. Great. And uh, there probably should have been a warning that it is annoying. You know, the media played that saying, you know, here's proof. We have this sound recording. And, you know, that held for a little bit until there is a study in it's on the archive. So it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but they make a convincing argument that it actually isn't a weapon but the sonic attack is actually the echoing call of the Caribbean cricket. And you can now insert that sound here. Great. In North America, we don't think of crickets making this horrendous sound, but this cricket does. And they do an analysis of, is it outside? Is it inside? What does it sound like? What are the spectra lines? And I mean, the spectrum matches just exactly. So that explains the sound. The other thing that we have to look into is I asked you earlier when people started noticing this and you said about 2016. There was something else going on then. And was this noise noticed in the U.S. Embassy first? Yep. Okay. Trump, the U.S. President Trump in 2016, happened to start talking about wanting to close the Cuban embassy. And it was, you know, really in his interest to spread discontent about Cuba. And his, his agent in his government started to tell diplomats about issues in Cuba they started telling diplomats about the sound. They started playing diplomats the sound and, and their families. They started telling them what the symptoms were that they were supposed to look out for. And suddenly, everybody started hearing the sound and having symptoms. But I think that is part of this mass psychogenic illness, is that if you start telling people what to look for, people suddenly notice it. What is interesting then is that after that, the Canadian embassy staff started developing symptoms after it started getting reported on. But surprisingly, none of the civilians that worked in the embassy noticed anything. None of the people in the surrounding areas noticed anything. None of the families in the houses noticed anything. So it was primarily limited to the U.S. embassy and then later the Canadian embassies, but none of the embassy workers, none of the people that were surrounded by the sounds. It was very specific. I think that's a really crucial piece of the story that I think makes a lot more sense of the mass psychogenic illness thesis. We've encountered this before, Nathan, with this notion of priming. In magic, magicians will do this, right? They'll prime you to expect a certain outcome but, you know, salespeople know how to do this. They, they prime you in terms of the expected value that a certain product should have only to sort of undercut that you feel like you're getting a great deal where, in fact, you paid at least as much as it was worth, if not probably a lot more. You're primed for certain things. And when you are primed, you then you, ex you look for it and often you find it. I think the other thing for the mass psychogenic illness is it impacts people who are under a lot of stress. Mm. And I think you're more, as you said, primed for, 
for something when when you're in a stressful situation and diplomats in Cuba well diplomats in general I think are are it's a pretty stressful job no I think I agree with Shelley I think it's a it's an example of mass psychogenic illness I do have a reservation I'm not an expert on mass psychogenic illness but what I uh, had seen in the past is that it does go away. So the one thing that makes this a little more interesting on just that question, and it actually comes to a point Shelley has raised often, is why does this persist? Like, why does it persist for, especially if somebody is talking about a headache for four years? The example I referenced in Colombia with the, the girls in the hospital, these things lasted about a week or two. You know, maybe even just a couple of days. It was, I don't know that many examples of these illnesses that don't actually have a biological basis to persist for years and years. Now, I'm going to just put that down to my own ignorance on the subject and, and, and open the possibility that, no, in fact, you could have a phenomenon like this go on for longer because it fits all the other data much better than the the other explanations that are available. I mean, I defer to Shelley when she says, "Look, you, you can't you can't make weapons the way science fiction authors imagine you can make weapons." You know, I mean, I I was sort of imagining you know the CIA men in black running around with sound guns, you know, that can like shoot ideas into your head or I don't know a radiation cannon that you can stick in the basement somewhere uh, and then shoot an embassy a kilometer away and get all the uh, interestingly as Shelley put it only the embassy staff the foreign personnel only make them sick not not the the other workers who are you know otherwise citizens uh, of that country in which the embassy is in there is no other obvious explanation that fits the data well. I, I think I would have to go with mass psychogenic illness. Okay. I mean, I think you both make excellent points. Uh, Shelley, I'm glad that you brought up the crickets, because that's such a, a key part of this story that, uh, that we hadn't gotten to yet. And so, hmm, here's the thing. Uh-oh, uh-oh. That's why I go third. He's coming you know, out of left field. He has, a, he has a sneaky trick where he says something else. He does. And leaves it very vague I, like that. Yes. I'm, well, I'm, I'm willing to consider the possibility that it was something else. Okay. Because the, the direction to Shelley was if you had to choose one of the three theses, and then now you're going to be like, yeah, but there's He's going to give something completely different. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Before he goes into his big thing, like... <laughs> He only gave me three options. Exactly. Right? Exactly. He only gave me so three he's options. He's playing his dirty trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there was a National Academies report, but the JAMA study keeps saying that they have this classified data that they're not sharing with anyone. So perhaps they started out their study because they have classified information that the government somehow has their hands on the weapon that was used. It still doesn't explain why only specific people were affected. That's the part that is really hard to explain unless they had some sort of bio tracker, right? Like 
but that's completely then we're really uh, going off into some like wild now speculation. we're really going off but i mean we go back to extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence and this is an extraordinary claim i was going to say I all need... that oh sorry just wind I just, up our I guests take it just wind them up take it from him <laughs> and 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 we don't have any sort of extraordinary evidence yet yeah, a completely... Go on, Nathan. Now you can... I took the steam out of you. Man, so oh man. Okay. You do it. Grumble, grumble. <laughs> uh, so in that case, I'll say uh, probably mass psychogenic illness. <laughs> I... Yes, I did it. There have been attempts to try to weaponize these things. Like there has well, been sure. a lot of money. There has been a lot of time. But it's the same thing that we came across with MKUltra. They were trying to build Manchurian candidates. They were trying to make assassins who didn't know they were assassins. There's no argument about that, but were they successful? I think it's a very similar thing here. Mm. I believe that the Soviets before them and Russia now, I think that the Americans, I think probably the Chinese, have all been looking into the possibility of weaponizing sound and, and radiation. But as far as whether that's what we're seeing in Havana, it doesn't seem to be the case. But again, you got to stress the fact that that doesn't mean that these people aren't really going through something and something really terrible and something really difficult. But it might not be the thing that they think it is. So I'm going to, in an unusual display of... Of solidarity. Of solidarity. In intellectual solidarity. Yeah, I'm going to say, I agree with you two. All right. But wow. as always, willing to entertain more evidence well, if, it I, comes, if it comes up. I'm sure that Shelley and I yeah. share that disposition. Yeah, but I said it. Yes, that's right. But Shelley makes her living yes, on with that it. disposition. I said it. <laughs> yes, Nathan, you said it. Thank you. Does that make you feel better? It does. 